Welcome to the podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Area Church at First Parish in Sherborne. No matter who you are, who you love, we welcome you into our community of religious seekers. Please join us for our Sunday worship services each week at 10.30 a.m. More information can be found on our website at uuac.org or visit our Facebook page at Sherborne Unitarian Universalist. Enjoy the sermon. Hello. Hi, people at home. Fifteen years ago, I went on our church's first rebuilding trip to New Orleans. A number of people here have been on some of those trips. Conditions were terrible, and people were in great need. Our emotions careened from grief to compassion and despair. Feeling desperate to get black families back into their homes, we worked long, hard hours. In our tired evenings, the last thing we wanted to do was attend what our host center called race dialogues. I'll speak for myself. I resented angry black people telling us about how racist white America had abandoned them. We were there, giving our hearts and labor. Also, I thought I already knew everything I needed to know about racism. Number one, it's really bad. And number two, good white people like us aren't racist. New Orleans broke my heart open, but it wasn't until five years into our rebuilding, when Trayvon Martin was killed walking one Florida evening, that my mind broke open too. I don't know exactly why the death of that teenager affected me so profoundly, Maybe because he was the same age as my hoodie-wearing, Skittles-loving stepson, or because I grew up with three misbehaving brothers who roamed freely in Florida neighborhoods where they really didn't belong, but they were white and safe. Finally, I became curious. I returned to the race dialogues in NOLA. I began to hear and read about America's ongoing legacy of anti-black racism, much of which was news to me. Back here at UUAC, at first, I didn't feel I could join our new racial justice team because I was so ignorant of history and lacked a clear, nuanced understanding of race in present-day America. Fortunately, a massive amount of information is easy to come by, but a more world-changing discovery for me was that no one is really on top of these issues. We're all still helping each other learn. I want to tell you that this learning has changed me. I am fiercer now, but I'm also more gentle. For example, although I still feel ashamed that I was arrogant about the racial education I didn't think I needed, I am more sure that where I was then is much less important, not than where I am now, but that I'm still moving, I'm still growing. I also want to tell you that I need these words, these words, to remind me how to continue moving. I struggle to remember crucial points embedded in the, fifth, in the eighth principle. I need workshops like the Justice Forum on March 5th, where we all can learn about ways to enrich our life in this congregation. When I look at it, the eighth principle, I admit I don't fully understand some of the terms. There are a lot of words. For example, number one, I don't know what spiritual wholeness feels like. 
although Jason did provide some memorable ways to imagine it. But I do know what journeying means. It's the verb that speaks to me. I am journeying toward greater understanding, and I'll follow this path with any fellow travelers available for the adventure. I hope to keep learning how to fill my spirit, how to reconnect with my heart and body, as Jason said, to remember myself. Number two, I also don't really understand all of what beloved community can be here at UUAC. But again, I do understand the verb phrase, working to build. I know how to stand side by side with other unskilled laborers and make what we can with love and effort. In New Orleans, we learn to repair damaged homes, but also eventually to change our approach from charity to solidarity, which requires mending ourselves and giving up our sense of superior generosity. This is what I think our justice teams do repeatedly, one repair at a time. Three, I don't yet see how dismantling oppressions will happen, but I am especially drawn to the adverb here, accountably. I long to face my responsibility better, to notice when I fail and falter, to find compassion for my missteps, and to return to the work again and again. I want not to let my heartbreak or fatigue or doubt or distraction lead me to break my promises, like our denomination has done for decades to our members of color. Number four, the noun phrase I think I like best in this principle is, and other oppressions. Because, although each oppression is unique, they also have so much in common. It just doesn't make any sense to challenge anti-black racism if we don't also take on inequities that affect immigrants and indigenous people, as well as gay, gender non-conforming, and differently abled people of all ages, and those who inhabit more than one of these identities. My fond hope is that the eighth principle will help me and us keep journeying, working to build, hold ourselves accountable, and to keep on working. The reason I fell in love with the eighth principle project is that it's a chance to live these intentions in our religious denomination, in our church. I treasure these commitments because I still don't know the answers, and I found such joy and companionship asking the questions and making mistakes here in this community. As Nathan says, this church is where we get to practice becoming the people we want to be. Shouldn't it also be where we practice building the world we want to live in? Thank you. It's good to see all of you this morning. And I miss you guys. Those of you at home who I can't, you can see me, I can't see you, but I know you're there. Friends, here is our world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Let us keep our hearts tender and our eyes soft and our words true. This is what you and I are trying to be about here in February of 2022. We wish it weren't true, but we know there's no answer but to love each other. We gather in community to practice being the person we say we want to be in Mali to build the world we want to live in. We cannot do everything, but we can do something. 
And that something is what? Not nothing. So let us ring the bells that still can ring and let us forget our perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. You can say with me, that is how the light gets in. All right, remember, what? Spicy. <laughs> so it was, um, I learned this in seminary. Carl, is it Carl Barth or Bart? Bart, thank you. I need my wing person here to keep me on my toes about how to pronounce my German theologians. Karl Barth was a German theologian, and he said that the preacher, that's me at least today, must preach holding the Bible in one hand. This is the Bible, by the way, that my Aunt Jan gave me in 1976 at my baptism. I was five. I think my parents kind of like trying to figure out like what they were going to do with me. So he said, Bible in one hand, and then the newspaper in the other. The idea being that faith ought to be shaped by what's happening in the world. And you notice when I do that, what's in the center? Me. You. And that's because we use our own life experience. Can I give, us, can I give you another theologian? This is the last one. Ralph Waldo Emerson, my, my son's namesake, um, who said that the true preacher can be known by this, that they deal out to the people their life. Life, he said, passed through the fire of experience and faith out to the rest of us, informed by what happens in the text and what happens in the world through our life experience. What I mean to tell you is that we're all living, we're all like giving a sermon. You're, you may not do it the way that I have to do it and that I love to do it, but the way that you live your life is your sermon. How you show up, who you show up to, what you do, what you don't do, that's your sermon. And one question I have for you to keep it spicy, is what's the sermon you're giving these days? What's your good news? So I am a serial carrier of news. Um, and, and the way I preach in my, in my work and also in the way that I live. And the reason for that is that I want you to know that whatever I will say is grounded in actually what's going on. I mean, I grew up in a faith tradition for as much as I love it, and I do love it, and I did love it, but where I doubted whether the priest who was talking to me on Sunday actually lived in the same world that I did. So it's important to me that you know that I live in the same world that you're living in. And so knowing that, knowing that we're going to you know, work on adopting this eighth principle, we have set, by the way, just we have seven principles as Unitarian Universalists. We're thinking about adding an eighth, just to talk very plainly. We're going to vote about it. What's the date? March 6th, after worship. Both we're going to do it here in person and virtually. That's what we're going to do. Anyway, this week I was paying attention to the news. 
and to faith and to myself. And here's what I noticed. Um, former Miami coach Brian Flores sued the NFL and three teams, the Dolphins, the Giants, and the Broncos, alleging in part racism and hiring practices. Okay, you might have heard about this, right? Like he tested, he, he got a text from Bill Pelichek saying, hey, you're in, you're good for the Giants, you're good. And he's like, I haven't even interviewed yet. That's not until like Thursday, it's Tuesday. And Belichick was texting the other Brian. They were interviewing Brian Flores for the, uh, for the Rooney rule, which says you have to hire one person of color for your job positions. All right, so that happened. Uh, Wednesday, no-knock warrant. I can't believe these things are still around in Minneapolis, where Amir Locke was sleeping with a gun. For whatever reason, he had a permit for it, and he was shot and killed. Uh, this week, the FBI has set a series of hoax bomb threats. They targeted all of the United States historically black colleges and universities. All of them. First day of Black History Month. This past month, you're like, wait, is this a top 10 sermon again? <laughs> Stay with me, because the news keeps happening. This past month, the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis pushed a bill to prevent any discomfort or guilt white people may feel about our nation's racist past. It, it literally says an individual should not be made to feel any discomfort or distress. Keeping it spicy. Speaking out against the bill, Ramon Alexander, Florida's House Minority Leader, who is black, stood up and he gave an impassioned speech. You can see it on YouTube and it's fantastic. They were trying to gavel him, to tell, to tell him to be quiet. And he said, I don't want to do this, you guys but I don't think you can handle the truth. I don't like having conversations like these, he said. It eats me up on the inside. But my reality matters as much as your reality. And then, I apologize. But former President Trump, if you won't listen to him, I will do it for you, spoke at a rally in Texas. And I, I just tune him out, but I need, we need to remember what is being said. He said, these black prosecutors investigating me are racist. He said, we're going to take back that beautiful, beautiful house that just happens to be white. He said that. And then we're going to treat those people from January 6th fairly. And we're going to give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly. This is his play, because I want you to know that your minister is living in the world that you live in. His play is to get an audience that is constantly agitated to feel like they're victims. As white people, they are victims. And he just ratchets it up and up and up. Look, I want to tune this stuff out. I mean, like, we live in Massachusetts. Let's just build up, like, ice berms so we don't have to listen to this stuff. I mean, I, I sometimes think like, hey, like, we're not Florida. 
We're not Missouri where I grew up. Like, this stuff doesn't happen here. I mean, can't we just do our seven principles and be, and be good and be chill and fine? Like, we'll just, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Everything's good. I keep thinking that and feeling that sometimes. But here's where I journey down the newspaper. It comes down my arm and it comes into me. Life experience in me. And the reason that I, do, I just can't let all this stuff dangle out here and toss it away. And that's because what's happening, the stories that I told you about and that have happened, they are tearing me up. They tear you up. Like there's no bomb in Gilead. Like where is the healing? We want to stay in our own little iceberg. I do. I want to tell the world to keep its distance. Don't make me uncomfortable with your reality. But I can't. And you can't. Um, some of you who are here in August under our tent that we had on the parking lot, I see some of you who were there. That I told you about an example that I keep thinking about now. My younger brother, Nick, who died of a drug overdose, would have been 43 on Friday. And you know, most of you know, many of you know, if you're new here, you don't know, that after that happened, I committed to talking to everybody in this community and beyond about addiction. It's like the last thing I wanted to write about. I thought I'd like write a sermon book, or I'd do like poetry or something. Not that that would really do very well, but I mean, you, you with me? Like, it's the last thing that I wanted to write, okay? But I did it, and it's like gone through innumerable edits, like even more. Ever since I even just talked, talked about this in August, it's gone through innumerable edits. I felt like I've, I've been alone on the screen with this, with this book. What I want to tell more of you about and remind those of you who heard me about this example last time is that these edits have come on the heels of some really hard conversations that I've had to have with my editor, the hard part being on my end. And she said, my experience of my family's addiction story was shaped not just by my family, by my dad and my mom and my sister and me, but by the culture that I live in and that you live in. It's a white culture. And this doesn't mean that all of us are white because we're not. It's a white culture that says addiction in our communities has to stay hidden because we have an opportunity to hide it. And we have a pressure to hide it because in our culture, we're about success. And we're about getting over stuff. <laughs> and we're about showing the good side and looking great and feeling good and having lovely, you know, landscaping. And the consequence, if you're like me, is that 
in your family, you feel like you're alone with this stuff. You're all alone. Because everyone else seems like they're doing fine. And then as a community, we don't talk about it. And then she said, Nathan, but other cultures are different. So all summer and all fall, I've had these conversations with my new, I'd like to call him a friend, but my colleague, Reverend Anthony Lloyd, who is the minister at, at um, the Framingham Community Church. It's the largest black church in Metro West. And I just want to remind you what he told me. And he, he said it again like a couple weeks ago. He's talking about like the last two years and, and the addiction story in my family and in his community. And he said this, Nathan, we've all been traumatized. He goes, when I hear you talk about your brother and coming out of the shadows with the story, by the way, that was going to be the title, Coming Out of the Shadows. Do you see my point? When I hear you talking about coming out of the shadows and how talking about addiction is going to talk about things that have been kept secret, all I can think of is how folk in our community, this is six miles away, you guys, in our community don't have that experience at all because in oppressed communities, the culture is about survival. And when it comes to addiction and drugs and alcohol, what helps us survive is that we have to name it. We have to speak it because if we don't in our community, we will not survive. And then he, even two weeks ago, he just, he, he took a pause and then he said, listen, Reverend, Pastor, Nathan, shame is not on the table. You guys, I have felt so much shame about my family's story. What could I have done? Maybe I'm like, maybe I'm just a crap brother. Like, what could I have done? He said, shame is not on the table because everyone knows someone who is struggling. Everyone. So I just want us to, I want you to, to, to have that sink in. And I want you to, I want you to think about your aloneness with whatever you're wrestling with. Your loneliness. It's not even about addiction now. It's about just the, just the last two years of living through this time we're living through. Parenting our kids, parenting our parents because they're getting older and they need us to love them and care for them the way that they sought to care for us. Working from home, dealing with like Zoom craziness and Zoom bombing and Zooming that doesn't work. And it's just, man. And then I want you to listen to what Reverend Lloyd told me again. I mean, he just, he, it, was, it was through Zoom, but he gave me a sermon that I needed to hear. He said, Reverend Nathan, we have to do our part as pastors and as, as, as community members, as family, to, to help each other confront what we're struggling with. Our job as people, he said, is to tarry with folk and not to run or shun. Hmm. Remember the white 
discomfort bill, remember? Our job is to tarry with folk, not run or shine. And then he said, the church's job is to come up alongside these families, to tarry with them is my language. What does tarry mean? Tarry means to abide. It means to stay with. And then he goes on. And then he gets the Bible. Remember, news, experience, news of the world. My experience as an older brother who's lost his younger brother who, who's supposed to be 43. He's supposed to be a dad to his nine-year-old. And we couldn't talk about it. To the text. Remember, he said, when God asked Moses, when, when Moses is doubting himself, by the way, the text talks about Moses, he stutters. He stutters. He, he can't talk. He says, don't call me. I don't know how to talk right. Because he's doubting himself. And what does God ask Moses? Do you guys remember? Do you know? He said, what is in your hand? And Moses what was Moses? He's a shepherd. What do shepherds have in their hands? I know we're not all shepherds, but we kind of forget. The GPS? No, it's a, it's a staff. And what we've got in our hands, in the church and pastors, what we have in our hands, you guys, is presence. That's what we have. We have the capacity to abide. Here's what we say. We're talking about my brother Nick. God didn't make Nick to do that, to be that way, to struggle the way he did. God didn't make this world for us to have no-knock warrants where black boys get killed. God did not make the world this way. We don't just walk away and say, it's just too terrible. We stay, we tarry, we abide. We help each other dream again. It is deferred and not dead. That's, that's the promise. The idea being that all of us, all of us are gonna get restored. Spiritual wholeness, Molly said. Wholeness. Bomb. Because you guys, like, I mean, the last couple of years, the last, I mean, it's broken me. It's cracked me. He told me um, a couple of weeks ago, he said, I told my people, referencing the scripture that talks about the enslavement of Egypt and the journey toward the promised land, he said, as black people, we're always going in and out of slavery. We're always going in and out of Egypt. George Floyd, he said, civil war, civil rights. All that's happened, we're getting out of Egypt and then we're going back in. 
And he said, I feel like we're always moving toward restoration, but then always getting put back into the bonds of Egypt. But he said, as black people, we have a history and a theology that says we stick at it. We tarry, he said, Reverend Nathan, we abide. You and I are going in and out of Egypt in our life. And if you feel like everything is good with you and the news doesn't impact you and the stories don't impact you, then it's time for you to listen to what it means to tarry with people for, who, for whom that truth is not evident. If you feel restored, then you have to wonder about those who do not and are not. I don't feel restored. It's important that you know that your, one of your ministers does not feel restored. <laughs> That's why I need your help. We need to talk about our struggles better. And one of them is this culture we live in that says that we have to, because of our race so much, we have to be perfect, we have to have, we can't show our pain, we can't show our brokenness. I want to get restored, y'all. I do. And I need your help. So, we're going to do this vote on March 6th, and it's great, and it's all good, but that's actually just a symbol of the work ahead. And my work, along with your work, is to keep this conversation and these stories and my experience and your experience, if I can lift up this giant Bible, and our faith all in, all in us. Because then, that's when the work begins. Friends, keep it. And let us say amen.